Amen. That's a gift that we have for those of us who are in Christ. That we don't expect eternal condemnation. That, that when the eternal Son of God died on the cross, that he removed every single ounce of guilt that we could possibly carry. Because it was finished on that cross. We have the privilege of meditating on that this morning. My name is John Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethany Baptist Church. It brings me joy to bring you God's word this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. The author of Hebrews has been writing to people, encouraging them to stay with Christ. And in chapter 8, while he sets the stage for, for Jesus being a superior covenant, what he does now in chapter 9 is start the comparison, right, in a, in a clearer fashion. By meditating on what happens in the old covenant and then comparing, to what, comparing it to what Jesus does in the new covenant. Let me read from verse 1. Hebrews chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1065. And this is the first time you've used the Bible. Big numbers are the chapter numbers. The little numbers are the verse numbers. We're looking at chapter 9. We're going to be reading the whole chapter. It says this. Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up in the first room, which is called the holy place were the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the Most Holy Place. It had the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above the Ark overshadowing the mercy seat. It's not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. With these things prepared like this, the priests entered the first room repeatedly, performing their ministry. But the high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. These, they are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of a new order. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling uh, those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will is valid only when people die, since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. That is why even in the first covenant, uh, why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. 
For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so that he might now appear in the presence of God for for us. He did not do this to offer himself many times, as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared One time, at the end of the ages, for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Let's pray. Lord, we believe that it was finished upon that cross. Pray now that as we meditate on this word, we recognize, Lord, that it's hard. These are complicated things. And while our minds are laboring to understand your word, we can't do it without your spirit's help. So we pray, Lord, that as the spirit made it clear that the most holy place had not yet been disclosed, that that same spirit will work in our hearts this morning to understand your word in Hebrews 9. We can't do it without your help. We trust that you will help us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's hard to think of a bigger scam in society today than premium gas. (laughs) Premium. As though somehow, if you just pay an extra 30 cents into your tank. It'll make your car run smoother, clean up the gunk in your engine, make your car perhaps ride a little longer, or go a couple more miles before it finally croaks. I've never put premium gas in my car. And I know my car is extremely valuable, being a Kia Soul, but I've always put the cheapest thing I can. And if I'm being honest, us Californians, we come up with all sorts of strategies. We think about Chevron or, or Shell being more premium than other brands. Let me tell you, as a guy who's lived on the East Coast for two years, it doesn't matter. It's all the same. And in fact, premium gas might be worse if your car is cheap like mine. It's not designed for it. But premium gas is useful if you drive a luxury car. If you drive a BMW or, or a Mercedes, you need that better gas because that's what your engine is built for. It's built for people that are outside of my tax bracket. <laughs> but the author of Hebrews goes over in Hebrews chapter 9 is really complicated stuff. Right? We're reading about covenants and stuff in, in temples and tabernacles and different objects and blood and, and all those different things. And, and it's easy to get lost in the details and get confused at what the author of Hebrews is trying to say. For that, I want to say two things. One, don't be a lazy baby, right? Hebrews 5. The second thing is that I think if you want to understand Hebrews 9 in kind of one sentence, the idea is that Jesus is giving you premium blood, Right, that the engine of the new covenant that you received is better. That the temple, that, that the tabernacle that Jesus enters into is better. It's just a better car. And because it's a better tabernacle, that means it needs better blood. So what the author of Hebrews is going to do in this chapter is make comparisons between my clunky Kia Soul and a luxury vehicle. Between the, the, 
old covenant and the earthly tabernacle and the heavenly temple and the new covenant and explain why Jesus' blood is better. So here's the main idea for us this morning. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. There are two points that the author of Hebrews gives to achieve that goal, that argument. Jesus is better. Reason number one, the old covenant doesn't work. The old covenant doesn't work. The second, the new covenant is better. The new covenant is better. And uh, I have three subpoints under point two. Number one, Jesus' blood is more effective. Is more effective. Secondly, Jesus' blood gives a better covenant. A better covenant. And lastly, Jesus' blood is final. It's final. So the old covenant doesn't work. The new covenant is better. Point number one, the old covenant doesn't work. Let's read again from verse one. Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry in an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle is set up and in the first room, which is called the holy place, where the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves, behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar that contained the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above the Ark overshadowing the mercy seat. It is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. So the author of Hebrews begins by explaining the setting of the Old Covenant. See, uh, in the temple grounds or the tabernacle grounds, you had a tent inside the grounds. And inside that tent were two rooms. Okay, in the, in the first room, you have uh, the lampstand, the table, and the loaves of bread, and that would be called the holy place. Priests would go in there all the time to offer different kind of gifts and sacrifices. The second room is called the most holy place or the holy of holies. To the Holy of Holies. It had the altar, the Ark of the Covenant, and angels overshadowing the mercy seat on the Ark. And then at the end of verse 5, the author says something that encourages me a lot. It is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. That, that he could, and there's a lot of gold in there in terms of the different symbols and, and significance of, and what it means inside the tabernacle to be part of this kind of dwelling place of God. But he doesn't have time. He can't do it. So for me, there's also more things I can say about it, about the Holy of Holies, the meeting place. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to talk about it. Right? If you have any questions, I'm going to talk about that stuff in the evening gathering. So I'm going to punt that for the evening. In the meantime, let me sum up what's significant about the holy place and the most holy place. Why, why the author bothers talking about all these different things. This is the only two things that you need to really remember. Two words when you think about all these different details. The holy place is holy. It's holy. That's all you need to know. They're holy. That every aspect of the holy place and the holy of holies is is designed to point out the holy perfection of God. That if God is going to dwell in the tabernacle with his people, that the tabernacle needs to be perfect and holy because God is what? Holy. holy. Because he is holy. And it's not supposed to just be holy in appearance. It's also supposed to be holy in function. In function. You could see that in verse 6. With these things prepared like this, the priests enter the first room repeatedly performing their ministry, their ministry. So the priests would go into the first room, the, the holy place, and repeatedly offer these kind of sacrifices and gifts. And this was really the main way that priests would function in the Old Covenant. So you sin, you realize that you sinned, you would go to the priest, the priest would go into the temple and offer gifts and sacrifices on your behalf. If you're curious about that, you can go to Leviticus and read chapters 1 through 5. And it'll kind of go over the different kind of offerings and, and sacrifices that you can give. And you can imagine how busy they were. Because sin, as it turns out, is pretty common. 
So priests would go into the first place often to perform their ministry. It was as frequent as, as you and I going into our office or, or into our living room if you work from home to kind of get the job done. But in addition to that room where they function regularly, where they keep giving sacrifices, there's also a second room. You can see that in verse 7. But the high priest alone enters the second room. And he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. In ignorance. So while the priests go into the holy place every day, the holy of holies is different. It's different. For, for more on this, you could read Leviticus 16 this afternoon. But once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, presents a sacrifice for himself in order to be able to enter the Holy of Holies before he even steps in there, and then enters into the Holy of Holies to present an atoning or, or, or payment for the nation of Israel on behalf of unintentional sins. So there are all sorts of ways that we sin all the time. One way that we sin is by sinning and not knowing what we did, right? All sorts of things that we do wrong. And so while the holy place has priests kind of all over for, for things that you knew that you did wrong, the Day of Atonement existed to cover all the things that you didn't know that you did wrong, but were still wrong. Right, so the Holy of Holies was only available to the great high priest once a year. And they had to offer sacrifices for themselves in order to cleanse themselves to be able to go in. And, and that required a payment of blood. So to sum it up, the Holy of Holies, unlike kind of the holy place where people go into all the time, is exclusive. Right? It's exclusive. Only the great high priest could go into it. Secondly, it's infrequent. Right? In the holy place, you have priests going in every single day doing their normal priestly routine. But, but in the Holy of Holies, you only go in once a year. And it's costly. It's costly. Priests don't have to do sacrifices for themselves in entering the first room. But in order to enter the, the second room, the Holy of Holies, they have to present a sacrifice for themselves before they can even present a sacrifice for anyone else. It's that holy. It's that clean. So it's exclusive it's infrequent, and it's costly. Why is the Holy of Holies like that? You can see that in verse 8. In verse 8. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. So why is the Holy of Holies exclusive, infrequent, and costly? Because the Holy Spirit is using it as a symbol, as a sign, as a reminder that you can't get in, that you can't enter into that Holy of Holies. In fact, you need someone else to go in there for you in order to create a sacrifice on your behalf. And the Holy Spirit is using the Old Testament, 2,000 years, millennia, before Jesus even comes onto the scene to point out the need of a greater sacrifice. Point out the need of a greater sacrifice. And notice what the text says that the sacrifices can't do. They can't perfect the worshiper's what? Conscience. They can't perfect the worshiper's conscience. Have you ever felt bad about doing something? Right? Ever try to make it up by doing good things for that person? There's nothing that you can do to cleanse your conscience before God. There's nothing that you can do. In fact, the entire reason why the Holy of Holies exists is as a physical, visual reminder that your best efforts are totally useless. There's nothing you can do to cleanse your conscience. There's no good deed you could bring 
There's no sacrifice that you could give to your priest when you sinned and you felt guilty about it. There's nothing you can do to cleanse your conscience. This is precisely why the Holy of Holies exists. Because tying your spiritual state, if you're in Christ, to your current performance is going to be utterly misleading. If you came in the room this morning and you felt guilty because of sins that you committed last night or in the previous week, as though that somehow affects your actual standing before God and your ability to enter into heaven, the Holy of Holies exists to tell you you're thinking about it wrong. There's nothing that you could do. That even if you lived a perfect, holy life and you killed it last week, and you come into this room, you read about the Holy of Holies and you realize that the sacrifice is for your unintentional sins. Even the stuff that you didn't notice stains you in such a way that your good works could never cleanse. You are dirty. You can always be doing more. You can always be doing better. And the point of these regulations is to show you that that system just doesn't work. It's broken from the beginning. You can't do it. Which means there needs to be a new system, a better one. See, the Old Covenant serves two purposes, okay? Uh, it's, not, it's not that the Old Covenant is inherently bad, right? It's not like God is imperfect or sinning or kind of being a malevolent ruler who just kind of cackles evilly as like he sees people suffering and trying. The, the Old Covenant serves a purpose, right? It's supposed to teach us two things. One, it shows the holiness of God. Right? It shows the holiness of God. It shows the value of God. It shows the seriousness by which we're supposed to take God. It also shows his exclusivity from us in light of how perfect he is. Right? His holiness. His glory. The second thing that the Old Covenant does is it shows the dirtiness of us. It shows the dirtiness of us. You see, when, when we look at the holiness of God and you see him high up above, or you look at the temple and you see how immaculate it is, you begin to see how dirty you are. In other words, the old covenant serves like a mirror, like a mirror. It, it, it's supposed to show you yourself in light of the true spiritual reality that you're in. And, and the point of the mirror is not so that you start com comparing yourself to the guy next to you, making sure that you're just a little bit cleaner than the next guy. But that any blemish, any unintentional sin, even the smallest infraction against this holy God bars you from dwelling with him, bars you from dwelling with him. There's nothing you can do to make yourself good enough to enter into that holy of holies. It's exclusive. It's infrequent and it's costly. So the old covenant doesn't work. It works in one way. It works as a mirror. It does not work as a cleansing system. It doesn't actually clean you. Here's the second point. Jesus' blood is better. Jesus' blood is better. Let's look at the first way that Jesus' blood is better. Jesus' blood is more effective. Jesus' blood is more effective. Verse 11. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Christ, in contrast to the old covenant, is better in every single way. Except going into the earthly tabernacle, Jesus enters into the holy of holies, not on the earth, but into heaven itself. 
And it's in that place, in the heavenly, most holy, most intimate dwelling place of God, that Jesus does the work of the great high priest. And he enters not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by his own blood. Better gas. And verse 12 says that Jesus has obtained what? Verse 12, having obtained what? Eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. That word redemption focuses on kind of this idea of a debt being paid off. Right? A debt being paid off. The, the image of debt kind of overlaps with the idea of oppression or slavery in the Bible. Proverbs 22, verse 7, if you listen to Dave Ramsey, he quotes it a lot, right? That the debtor is what? Slave to the lender, right? The debtor is slave to the lender. And here, Jesus is purchasing redemption. In other words, if you're a sinner, right? If, if, if you sin, you're in debt. You're in debt. And there are a few things that bring us more dread or more stress in our lives in debt, right? You think about what you need to pay off, making sure that you can meet your payments, that you're on a schedule, or you look to Joe Biden for redemption, whether it's your own work or the promise of student loan forgiveness, you look for a relief, something to free you from the chains of monetary debt. It's a similar idea here. Jesus, on the Day of Atonement, right, or, or, or the great high priest on the Day of Atonement, enters into the Holy of Holies to make a payment. Right? He's making a payment for the sins of the people. And he uses the blood of, of bulls and goats to, to sprinkle the defiled or to sanctify them or, or to set them apart from the purification of the flesh. And if that's how the old covenant worked with animal blood, right? Just think about money, right? If, if they're paying with animal blood, how much more valuable is Jesus's blood? More valuable. It is. Right? And look at how the author describes the effect of Christ's blood for us. That it cleanses your conscience from dead works. That Christ's blood is so much more valuable that when you have the eternal Son of God, second person of the Trinity, die and spill his own blood for you, that that blood covers Every sin that you could possibly commit in your life. Every sin that you will commit. And that blood is so effective. It doesn't just cleanse you temporarily or cleanse you occasionally, but cleanses you fully. That it gets to the deepest part of you. It cleanses your very conscience from dead works. Dead works. Your works are dead, are dead. They're, they're useless. There's nothing you can do to cleanse your conscience. It's what we sang about, right? That, that is utterly useless. And in fact, if Jesus is cleansing your conscience from dead works, that means that even the works that you do is part of the muck that Jesus is trying to cleanse off from you. He's trying to wash that away. Your attempts to be clean enough, to, to, to be presentable enough, you just get washed away by Christ's blood. But accepting grace is hard, isn't it? I mean, have you ever gone out with your family as a kid with another family and watched your parents fight over the bill? It's like a social thumb war on the subtextual battlefield, trying to make sure that you're the one that pays for the meal and not the other, right? Why do they fight so hard to pay for the bill? Because whoever doesn't pay the bill feels like they owe the other person, right? It creates an imbalance where one person has to accept that they're inferior and accept that the one who paid is superior. And what do we say in order to kind of rebalance or save face? We'll say something like, okay, but next time I'm paying. Right? As though somehow the promise of an IOU in the future balances the scales in some way. Accepting grace is hard. You can even see that in the attitude of the prodigal son. 
right? He decides that it's better for him to go back to his father after years of sitting in a pigsty, not to ask for forgiveness, but to offer his services. Let me work for you. Let me be a servant in your house to ask for a job. After years of wallowing in the muck of a pigsty. But how does his father react when he sees his son? Not with disdain. Not with an eight-step plan of kind of regaining trust. But with the warm embrace of a loving father. See, the only thing that separated the prodigal son from his father's grace wasn't a heartless father, but his guilty conscience. And God wants to relieve you of that burden, of that weight, that there's no work that you can do, no gift to give, to cleanse your conscience, to cleanse your hands. You cannot cause your soul to live. But God is merciful to you. In Christ alone, his blood cleanses you. He cleanses your conscience, not by toiling away with your hands and making you work in order to regain his approval, but by empowering you to run into the Father's arms. And it's that cleansing of our conscience, that cleaning of ourselves, that enables us to serve the living God. That enables us to serve the living God. You can see that in verse 4, that, that the blood, right, that Christ offers cleanses our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. That, that we get the privilege of true obedience. That, that if you're in Christ, if the blood of Christ has washed you, has cleansed your conscience from dead works, freed you from that burden, paid that penalty in redemption, that you are free to serve the Lord with a clean conscience without feeling the flames of hell licking your back. You can serve God and obey him truly without the threat of God's judgment. Not in obedience to try to repay the loan that we owe, but a true obedience that comes from the blood of Christ. That comes from the love of Christ. There was one time, a long time ago, PJ remembers this when we uh, were revitalizing a church. Uh, we had a member of our church who desperately want to sing a hymn uh, where we sing as though we're God and we say, all these things we have done for you, what hast thou done for me? We're never going to sing that song here because that couldn't be further from the truth. God cleanses us. And rather than asking, what have you done for me? He just gives you more grace, more power, more strength from the spirit, more blood to pay for every sin that you commit. And what happens is you get so overwhelmed with that grace, that blood is so powerful from Christ that you're not in debt anymore. You're actually filled with excess. You have so much grace, you don't know what to do with it. And it's out of an overflow of that grace and love that you've received from Christ that then leads to your ability to obey God and serve those around you. It comes from the overflow of what you've received. Have you thought about that? That you can actually serve the living God? That God actually thinks much of you that you have things to contribute. I mean, what greater motivation do you need than that God has his full support of you when you choose to obey him? We all work harder when someone believes in us. When someone believes in us. I could think of so many different examples in my own life. PJ believing in me when I was an undergrad student. Right, Mark believing in me, empowering me when I was in D.C. A, a person that believes in you and trusts you with things is like motivational crack. It just fills your vein. You get motivated. You, it's like nitro in your engine. You go. 
Here's how one guy described his mentor's support. He said, quote, one of my greatest resources is a sense of my leader's backing. My greatest pride is his belief in me. Surely, one of my greatest motives is to be worthy of his support and to measure up to his expectations of me. See, God has belief in you. Not, not because you're awesome or because you have great things that you do and you're a good person, but because Christ's blood is on you. And because Christ's blood is on you, he supported you in the best way possible. He freed you from a guilty conscience with his blood, and he's empowering you with his spirit to obey him. Honestly, what more do you need? There's no pep talk that's necessary, right? You can serve the living God. What more motivation could you ask for? Christ's blood covers your sin. You are freed from sin so that you're free to serve him. You're able to do this. If you have tendencies towards discouragement, if you're a person who has patterns of kind of introspection, right, where you walk around every week and, and, and you have a highlight reel running of all the mistakes that you've made, right? When you talk with other people, you're, you're quick to kind of talk about all the burdens in your own life. I want to encourage you to keep doing that. That's okay, right? Sharing burdens is not bad. I want you to feel guilty about doing that at all. But I just want you to notice that there's an element to which that hyper-introspection and consistent discouragement is actually counterintuitive to what God wants for you, right? That God doesn't want you to dwell on every mistake that you've made in the past. That, that if, you, if you think about it, if you talk to someone else and every single time someone asks you about your week and you're quick to talk about your discouragements, Right? And every time that they try to encourage you, you, you dissuade them because you want to keep wallowing in your own guilt. You become a black hole of discouragement to those around you. That's not pleasant. And God doesn't want that for you. Right? And he doesn't want you to kind of hear this and, and add that to your list of reasons why you feel bad about yourself. Right? What, what God wants is to free you from that. Right? For you to recognize that you have everything that you need in Jesus. And one of the ways that you can practice that in faith, right, if you're prone towards discouragement, if you're prone towards introspection, is to practice the discipline of encouraging those around you, right? That even if your heart might not feel like you're up to the task of serving other people, the one of the things that you can do in faith, in light of what Christ's blood has done for you, is to serve and encourage those around you. See, it's easy to get caught up in analysis paralysis, right? Where you feel so guilty before God, you say things like, how could I possibly serve God? Or you turn around, you're like, man, I should be serving the Lord more, and I feel guilty because I'm not serving the Lord, which means uh, I'm not good enough, which means I'm not going to serve the Lord, which makes me feel more guilty about not serving the Lord, and so on, and so on, and so on. So let's just be real. If your self-earned holiness is the standard by which you determine whether or not you're able to serve someone else, you're never going to serve anybody. You're just going to keep eating and eating and eating, and you'll never serve the Lord. So maybe one thing that you can do this morning in order to practice faith, to believe what Jesus has done for you in Christ, in his blood, is to take time to ask someone how you can pray for them, how you can encourage them and serve them and pray for them. Actually do it. Actually encourage them. Put yourselves in their shoes. Focus on how you can serve them. That would be a good way for you to spend your takeaway time today, right? To, to ask someone how they're doing and minister Christ to them, serve them. That was reason number one. Jesus' blood is more effective, cleanses our conscience, enables us to serve him. There's a second reason why Jesus' blood is better. Jesus' blood gives a better covenant. Gives a better covenant. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So those who are 
called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus' blood here in verse 15 does two things. First, it provides the promise of the eternal inheritance. It pays it off. Right? God gives a IOU, I'm going to give you an inheritance, Jesus' death pays it. Right? He gives the inheritance. The second thing that Jesus' death does is it pays the penalties for the sins of the first covenant. Of the first covenant. Isn't that interesting? That even the, the blood of bulls and goats, even the stuff that, that the old covenant kind of labored for day after day, right, and providing sacrifices, doesn't actually get paid off in actuality until Jesus dies. Jesus is the actual payment for all those sins. That happens in Hebrews 10. I'm not going to preach Hebrews 10 for a long time, so we'll get there when we get there. Verse 16. Where will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. For will is valid only when people die, since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. That is why the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the the scroll itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It's really hot up here. The author takes time in verses 16 and 17 to look at how covenants work. How covenants work. Now, verse 16 and 17 says the word will, which probably brings to mind a dying will or testament, right? If you don't have a will, you probably should get one, right? Uh, and the idea with will is that in order for a will to come into effect, someone needs to die, right? Death is a pretty essential part of a will, right? Uh, it would not make sense if someone just kind of shows up and starts taking your stuff because you promised them to, to them in the future. And if you read verse 16 and 17 that way, it seems like Jesus' death then kind of validates this new covenant. Like the new covenant almost functions like this will that then gets put into effect when Jesus dies, right? There's a will, promise, Jesus dies, and it triggers a new covenant. Um, and I think that that's one legitimate way that you can look at it. That's one legitimate way that you could look at it. But uh, I, I take a slightly different position. The word for will is actually the same as the word for covenant. It's the exact same word. Right? So when you see covenant and will, it means the same thing. What, what translators are trying to do, and they're doing a good job of it, is they're trying to understand what that word is being used in their function. Right? So, so uh, take, for example, the word please. Right, uh, you can ask for something, and then what do you say if you're supposed to ask nicely? You say please, right? Um, but then if if someone gives me ice water on a really hot pulpit day, like my sister did because she loves me, right? Um, and it pleases me. Is it the same word? Same word, but it's used totally differently based on the context, right? So, so what the author, what the translators are trying to do with your Bible is trying to see how that word covenant, which can be used for will, is being used here. And their best guess is that it's a will. And my answer is no, it's not. <laughs> I think it's a covenant, right? I think it's a covenant. Um, and and it, it probably makes better sense of what verse 17 is saying. See, verse 17 is saying that the covenant is valid only over dead things, over dead things. It doesn't say over death. It doesn't explicitly say dead people. That's an inference. It says dead things, dead things. And it makes sense when you look at the explanation in verse 18, right? In verse 18, look at what verse 18 says, right? This is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with what? blood, right? It's not like the first covenant went into effect when all the Israelites died, right? It doesn't function like a will, right? What happens is blood officiates kind of the, the covenant, right? It's inaugurated with blood. In other words, the way that you would kind of sign a covenantal contract, right? The way that you would kind of put your signature on the dotted line, so to speak, was by using blood, by using blood. 
or in other words, using a dead thing. That's why in Genesis 15, when Abram kind of does his covenant with God, you see Abram bring a cow, goat, ram, turtle dove, and pigeon and cut all of them in half. Right? So you have the spilling of blood there. Right? And then God, in a vision, right, with a smoke and fire plot and flaming torch, passes between the divided animals. Right? And he says, uh, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Right? It's a way of kind of making the covenant official or showing that you mean it. Right? And you see the same thing happen in Exodus 24, which we read earlier in our scripture reading. Right? Uh, you might be wondering why we read such a long passage about blood and, and different things that are going on. The point is that Moses takes the blood of calves and goats to enact the covenant. Right? And he sprinkles it over the people right, with his branches. He sprinkles blood all over the, of the people. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In other words, no blood, no covenant. If you have blood, then you have a covenant. So what does Christ need to do in order to ratify a new covenant? He needs blood, right? He needs blood. And what does Jesus do? He spills his own blood. This is why before he's crucified in the first Lord's Supper, he, he lifts up a cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. What is Jesus doing at the Lord's Supper? The same thing Moses did in Exodus 24. He's officially ratifying a new covenant. He's officially ratifying a new covenant. And when he dies on the cross and his blood is spilt, what Jesus does is he sprinkles us clean and brings us into that new covenant promise. And he does that by his blood. Jesus' death ratifies the new covenant. It ratifies the new covenant. You don't have Christianity without Jesus dying on the cross. The death on the cross officially makes the new covenant a thing. This is precisely why we at this church labor to be cross-centered people. Cross-centered people. We want to be cross-centered in our lives. I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard phrases like, like, man, in the church today, people always talk about Jesus' death, but not enough about his life. As though those need to be equivalent things. I just couldn't disagree more. Right? In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. He had one word. He didn't say we preach Christ glorified or, or magnified or, or Christ loving or Christ living or Christ incarnated or even Christ resurrected. He said we preach Christ crucified. And you can see the reason right here. It's on the cross. It's when Jesus dies on the cross that the whole thing comes together. The cross is where Christ pays the penalty of sin. It's on the cross where Jesus ratifies this new covenant, where Jesus purchases forgiveness for you and I. It's not that the other parts of Jesus' work is unimportant, right? They're absolutely essential. Everything that Jesus does in his life and ministry is absolutely essential. But the cross is the most important, it's the most important. It's the main thing. It's the focal point of salvation. And how is Jesus able to sprinkle the tabernacle and the articles with, with blood in verse 21? By spilling his own blood. And you see the explanation there in verse 22. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Forgiveness. In order for you to be forgiven, Christ's blood has to be spilt. It's the main thing. Can you see why Jesus would say then, do this in remembrance of me? Because remembering Jesus on what he's about to do on the cross is the main thing. That if you start to become desensitized by your sin. If you start to get tempted to go astray and, and disobey the Lord, you can remember Christ crucified and see the weight and penalty that was put on him and desire righteousness. That if you are discouraged 
and you forget grace, that you can look to the cross and see Christ crucified and see his blood spilt for you and recognize that Jesus paid it all. It's Christ crucified that you need. And Jesus, when he spills his blood, pays everything that you could possibly need in full. That's what makes the Lord's Supper so potent, so encouraging from our hearts. There's nothing mystical that happens with these elements, right? Uh, in the past, uh, I'll just share this. I'm over time anyway. Uh, uh, Catholic, Catholic priests would uh, only do their mass in Latin, and uh, people in Europe didn't speak Latin. It was like a super old language. They didn't understand anything that was happening. And they would say in Latin, this is my body. And that was the point at which they believed that, this, that the elements in front of them actually became Jesus' body through transubstantiation. And they would say it in Latin, and people had no idea what they were talking about. So they would hear the priest go up every single time. And the priest would go up, and in Latin, he would say, Horcus corpus meum. And that's where we get hocus pocus. Because people had no idea what was going on. What we believe about the Lord's Supper is the total opposite of that. That Jesus doesn't need to get represented or re-sacrificed on your behalf. That these elements themselves, the bread, right? We use Stacy's pita chips, right? And sometimes we use cranberry juice. The reason is because the elements aren't really the main thing. Right? They don't do anything to you. What does happen, though, and why we still do it and why these elements matter is because when you take the elements, you remember. You remember Christ's blood split, spilt for you. You remember his body broken for you. And when you're reminded every time that you take these elements, Christ reminds you of the grace that he's already purchased for you. He gives you more grace again. And again and again, everything that Jesus does is focused on the cross, either leading up to it or as a result from it. If you're not a Christian here this morning, that is the main message that we have for you. There's nothing else for you to look at. There's nothing more important for you to do. There's nothing that you can do to possibly cleanse your conscience. If you stand before a holy God and say that you did good things, that will not be enough. But I have good news for you. Christ's blood was spilt. He lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. He paid the penalty for sin in full. So if you turn from your sin and trust in this Jesus, if you look to him, he will sprinkle his blood on you. This new covenant promise that we're about to recognize in the Lord's Supper could be a reality for you. You can have Christ today if you, turn, if you turn from your sin and trust in him. See, works are utterly useless, guys. You can see that in Exodus 24. I wish I had more time to talk about it. Moses goes through all this trouble to sacrifice an animal, take branches and sprinkle them clean, right? And, and over and over again, he says, this is a new covenant. And the people respond with, we will obey the Lord and what he commands. Moses goes up to the mountain. He gets seven chapters of instruction. And by the time he comes back down from the mountain, the Israelites are worshiping a metal cow. The whole point of the old covenant was to show you that you need sprinkling, but it's not going to happen there. It needs to happen with Jesus. Only Christ can cleanse you. Here's the last reason. Because Jesus' blood is final. Because Jesus' blood is final. You see that in verse 23. Therefore, it is necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, so he might now appear in the presence of God for us. Again, luxury car, right? Better temple, better blood. Verse 25. He did not do this to offer himself many times as a high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. Otherwise, he would have to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
One last contrast that the author makes between Christ and these earthly priests. The priests go in over and over to present sins, uh, sacrifices every time that you sin. Jesus, at the end of ages, we're in the end of ages right now. It's the end of ages. We're in the last days. Not because we think that the tribulation is happening. It's just the age that you see in the Bible. Right? Jesus comes and he presents the sacrifice once. Once. That's the whole point of Hebrews 10. He's taking this, and he's just going to fly in Hebrews 10 into the glories of heaven itself. Right? Talking about Jesus' one sacrifice. But we're probably not going to get to Hebrews 10 for a while. The point the author is making is that Jesus' sacrifice happens one time. See, sometimes we think of salvation like a clean slate. Right? Like when you come to Jesus, he's, he's given you a second chance. Right? And you better not screw it up. Right? Go live righteously. And every time we do mess up, it's as though we need to accept Jesus into our hearts all over again. So you come down to the altar and you say, I'm going to do better next time. But that's closer to how the old covenant works. That's not how the new covenant works. The new covenant has one sacrifice. Jesus doesn't need to present any other sacrifice again. He doesn't even need to keep pointing back to the sacrifice. He removes sin one time, and the work of removing sin is completely finished. It's done. That when Jesus dies on the cross and he said, it is finished, he meant it. He meant it. And if Jesus' death and sacrifice only happens one time, the point is that no other sacrifice will ever be necessary ever again. He paid everything. There's no overage fees. There's no re-sacrifice. There's no re-presentation. Nothing else is necessary. Jesus paid it all. There's no sin that you could commit this week that would somehow outdo Jesus' payment for you. Jesus paid it all. When Jesus died on the cross, he knew every sin that you would ever commit and paid it in full because Jesus paid it all. There's nothing else you can want. There's nothing else that you need. And that's precisely why Jesus, after dying on the cross, can go to heaven, present his sacrifice, and sit down because he's done. There's no more work to do. It's finished. He paid it. It's done. It's final. Which is why when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back to clean up your mess. You see that in verse 27. And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. See, if you're in Jesus, that idea is appointed for man to die once and after this judgment, any fear or terror of that sentence completely dissipates away. That when you're in Christ and you're appointed to die and after this there's judgment, what awaits you isn't an ounce of condemnation, but only salvation. Only salvation. All this means that, that when Jesus comes back, he's not going to do any more sacrificing. He's not saying, hey, I know you're broken now, but let me, let me go ahead and, and pay for you. He's going to bring the full fulfillment of what he already paid for. That when you're in Christ, you're forgiven right now. And that when Jesus comes back, you're going to receive far more than you can possibly imagine. That when Jesus comes back, there's not going to be a single ounce of cleaning up your mess. He's only coming to bring you salvation for those of us that are in Christ. And when he brings that salvation to us, when we stand before that throne, complete, our every need met by this Jesus... We'll only have one thing to say. Jesus died, my soul to save. And our lips shall still repeat over and over and over again. Because that mercy is so valuable, so eternal, so precious.
that his mercies ever shall endure, even when suns and moons shall be no more. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ's blood, how effective it is. We thank you for the privilege of being able to meditate and remember that sacrifice even now as we take the Lord's Supper this morning. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to treasure this Christ, to feel his power, his grace towards us, and that we would be motivated towards Christ-likeness and righteous living. We can only do this by your help. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.